Church family, it is such a pleasure to be here with you again this morning to open up uh, God's Word to you today. Please open your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 12. And as you make your way to your place in your Bible this morning, I want to draw your attention to one really important event coming up uh, here at Enon. I always take a moment here to announce something that's really important coming up. And I want to remind you about the church picnic that is coming up on Sunday afternoon, August the 2nd at Cornerstone uh, Campground there in Mount Olive. This is always such a fun time. We're going to have uh, the main meal will be provided by the church. You can bring some sides and desserts and those things. Bring a bag chair and a shade tent, but we're going to have uh, fun games. We're going to have some great music and it's a wonderful time to hang out. Uh, but let me tell you why this matters. This is more than just an opportunity for you to come. This is There's some spiritual purposing behind what we do here. You know, the Bible talks about we are to be the body of Christ. And one of the most important things that make the church the church is that we're able to build godly friendships and connections and relationships. And we do that primarily through life groups. If you're not involved in a life group on Sunday, man, come see one of us and we can help give you some suggestions of classes that you can join. But uh, uh, also, events like this help us just to connect as a church, especially as we continue to grow. It helps us to have those moments together. You know, one of the statements that we say around here at Enon is that inside the church, everybody doesn't have to know everybody, but everybody needs to know some somebodies, okay? That's bad grammar. It's really good theology, all right? So this is a places like this or moments when you can. So mark that on your calendars and really uh, try to make uh, plans to come and be with us for that. But hey, with that being said, we're going to continue in our series this morning that's going to take us the rest of the time through the fall called The Story of God. And if you remember in this series we talked about last week, we're looking at different eras throughout biblical history and we're kind of giving a high-level, 30,000-foot view of what happened in that era so that we as God's people can, can better understand God's overall story. It helps us to better understand the Bible and how, how to, to read the Bible correctly and how to see that, but ultimately to know who the God of the Bible is because the Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so by knowing the story of God, we can also see where we fit into God's greater story. And so last week, we talked about the very first part, uh, the very first era, which was the era of creation and early humanity. And we saw the fall of man. We saw how sin entered the world. And because of that, brokenness spread throughout all of humanity. And we talked about church. We still sense and experience that today. We still know there's brokenness in the world today. But we also ended that message with talking about how God was working a plan, even from the beginning, to bring humanity back to himself. At the end of Genesis 11, which is where we left off last week, we see the descendants of Shem, who was one of Noah's son after the great flood. And towards the end of that genealogy, we see that from Shem came a man named Terah. And Terah had a son named Abram. And Abram took a wife named Sarah. And that's where we end in Genesis chapter 11. And then from there, we're going to pick up in Genesis 12. And so this morning, Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning in reverence to the reading of God's Word. So Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord God said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. 
and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Let's pray this morning. Father, I ask, I thank you, Lord, that you are the one who called Abraham to leave his family and his relatives and to trust you. And that, God, you gave a promise to Abraham that through him all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that, God, that includes us here today. And so, Lord, I pray that as we see this this morning, I pray that we would know and better understand your story. But, God, I'd also pray that you would speak to us from your story. But, God, I also pray that you would show us how much and how long you've been pursuing us, Father. And I pray that even today that all of us, God, would find you in a new way. Or some of us would find you for the first time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So the story that I tell our message today is God's story in the era of the patriarchs. Now again, last week we talked about how through sin came suffering, but God was always working a plan to bring man back into relationship uh, with him. And we see this morning that really that starts, God's plan really starts to take place with Abraham and ultimately his descendants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're referred to as the patriarchs. Now, the word patriarch refers to usually the eldest male in a home or a family or among a tribe of people. Here we see from the beginning, so God has established that man is separated from him, that he established his judgment against sin there at the flood. But now through the descendants of Abraham, God has pulled aside Abram and promised him that through him he would bless him and that he would bless all the nations of the world through him. This was God's first step in bringing man back to him. This would end up, through Abram, would end up being the Israelites or the Jewish people from which Christianity, we find our roots. And so like we said last week, in each one of these eras, we're going to attempt to answer four major questions to help us understand this era. So we're going to jump right in this morning. So question number one is, what are some major happenings during this season in God's story? Well, during this season in God's story, God's plan to save humanity and it, from sin and separation from him begins to take place with God calling apart Abram and ultimately through him to create a special nation or race of people. And so we're going to look at the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these fathers of the Jewish nation or the people of Israel. Now, obviously, we can't look at each one of their lives in great detail, uh, but we're going to give an overview. And this first point is where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning, but we've got to put it in B for boogie today to get there. In what uh, Jesus told Judas, what thou doest, do quickly. So we're going to have to do quickly this morning. So hang on. So first, to understand this era of the patriarchs and God's story, we must look to Abraham. Now, it is impossible to underestimate the importance of the role of Abraham in the Bible. It would be through Abraham that God would bring about his special people. God's unique relationship with the descendants of Abraham would set them apart from the rest of humanity. One day, through Jesus, God would bring all people unto himself. But at the very beginning, God used specifically the people of Abraham and from his descendants. Think about this for a moment. Ultimately, all of the Bible, all of the heroes in the faith in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we find our heritage, we find our place, and you can trace them back to the person of Abraham. 
So let me give you some, a life overview of Abraham. First, in our text today, we see in Genesis 12 that God calls Abram and to leave his father, and he took his wife Sarah, and the Bible says, the Bible says who was barren at that point, and his lot nephew, and they left for the land of Canaan. This is where the people of God began, was with a moment of obedience to faith. From the very beginning, the people of God have been distinguished in the earth by moments of faith. Imagine that. You are leaving your people in a day and age in which the strength and security of your life rested in your tribe, in your descendants, in your peoples, is that he left to be a sojourner, a loner in a land that he did not know. In Genesis 12, 7, God promised Abram that one day he would give the land of Canaan to his descendants, saying, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Remember that, by the way, how when God met with Abram, how, God, how his first response was to build an altar to the Lord. But church, this is where we see throughout the Old Testament, and even with the Jewish people today in the land of Israel, why they are so tied to that specific area of the world. This was divinely given Real estate and the Jewish people still feel God's claim to that today, and rightfully so. In Genesis 15, we see God promises Abram that he would bless him immensely and that part of that blessing would be that he would give him a son. If you look at Genesis 15, verses 4 and 5, he says, But one will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look towards the heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said, so your descendants shall be. God blesses Abraham and tells him, look at the stars. All of your descendants will be like the stars, promising to multiply him greatly. Also in Genesis 15, God changes Abram's name from Abram to Abraham and Sarah's name right after this moment to, from Sarah's name to Sarah. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of multitudes. Sarah, her name means princess. But changing her name to Sarah means that she was noble woman. Even there, God changed their names to resemble the promise that he had given them. In Genesis 16, we see Sarah gets impatient with God and convinces Abraham to bear children for her through her servant Hagar as a surrogate. Hagar conceives and gives birth to a son named Ishmael, whom God would end up blessing, but would not be the child that God fulfills the promise to Abraham and Sarah to have a child. In Genesis 17, God gives Abraham the ritual practice of circumcision for all the males in his household as an outward symbol that they had been set apart by God. In Genesis 17 and 18, the Lord appears to Abraham and Sarah in two different moments and says to them again that they will bear a child. And in both situations, both of them in different moments, they laugh at that moment because at this point in time, Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90 years old. But God says not only will she give, give birth, but this time next year she will have a son. 
In Genesis 21, we find where God fulfills his promise to Sarah, and she gives birth to a son, Isaac, exactly one year. I love how the Bible says exactly one year. Church family, if God ever puts a date on something, you can take that to the bank, and he follows through with that promise. And Isaac's name means laughter. Isn't that good? In some moments, it's almost like her naming him to say, surely God did come through. We laughed at God, but surely God did come through. But also, it reminds us of the joy that God gave Abraham and Sarah later in life by giving them a child at an impossible age. In Genesis 20, 23, we see that Sarah, the wife of Abraham, dies. And Abraham purchases a field in a place called Machpelah, in the land of Canaan, and it had a cave there, and he buried his wife Sarah there. And then in Genesis 25, we see that Abraham dies, and his son Isaac buries him in the same cave as his mother. Now, if you read Genesis 25, verses 7 and 8, it talks about the death of Abraham in a powerful way. Listen to this. It says, These are all the years of Abraham's life, that he lived 175 years, Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. There's a first couple of things to see there. When, when not, Abraham was not a perfect man, and we'll see that in a moment, but Abraham was perfectly submitted to God. Is that even when he failed, he repented. And because of that, the Bible says that he was satisfied in Life. If you love Jesus, it does not mean that you're promised a ripe old age in life, but it does mean that you are promised that your heart can be full. Another funny thing to see here is the Bible does refer to as a man as an old man. And that's, that reminded me this last week, the, uh, the, the Read With Me program started at the schools and it went so great. It went so well on Mondays and Tuesdays. We're able to go into the elementary school and help children who are struggling with their reading in different levels. But the funny part of that is the majority of the people who are, are serving in this are some of our retired ladies. And we did have one lady come to the church afterwards that said in the middle of her teaching, she raised her hand and she said, Ma'am, I don't want to be rude, but I have a question. Anytime you start off that way, you know that you know that she said, Yes, ma'am, what's your question? She said, Why are all you old ladies coming up here to the school? <laughs> so, so she was scripturally, she was speaking well. So anyway, but then you go from Abraham and then you go to Isaac. So this morning, the Bible tells us a lot about uh, Abraham, but it doesn't give us as much detail about the life of Isaac. In Genesis 22, we see the first mention of Isaac after his birth. And in this chapter, we see it's the moment where Abraham is called, tested by God, if he would sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, most scholars uh, disagree maybe on the age here, but the vast majority of scholars believe that, that, that Isaac was not a young child here in this moment. He was very likely a young man or a young teenager. And the Bible says that when Abraham goes up the mountain to prepare for the sacrifice, that he binds the hands and feet of Isaac and lays him on the altar. And so that was a picture. Again, this is a young man. He was being submissive to God in this moment. And as Abraham goes to raise the knife, you remember the story, the angel of the Lord stops him and says, surely you have not withheld your own son. I know your faith is real. And provides for him a ram in the thicket and they sacrifice the ram instead. It's a beautiful picture and it shows the faith of Abraham, but it definitely shows the faith also of Isaac. He would have remembered this moment. This is a huge marker in his life. In Genesis 24, not long after Sarah's death, the mother of Isaac 
We see the picture of Abraham sending out his servant to return the land of his father and bring back a wife for Isaac. In the story, God supernaturally leads Abraham's servant to Rebekah, who is connected to the family of Abraham. Rebekah agrees to leave her homeland and return with Abraham's servant to be the wife of Isaac. When Isaac sees her, he rejoices in her and takes her as his wife. Genesis 24, 67 records this moment. It says, Then Isaac brought her into his mother's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. I love that it, it talked about a husband loving his wife. Now, church family, if you read that whole interaction, it's also a, a, a great picture for us who are raising teenagers of what courtship looks like and how parents should be involved in that process as your children start to come of age to consider romance and marriage and those things. Let me say something to you, mamas and daddies, this morning. If you just let your kids go out and figure it out on their own, then it is not going to work out well for anyone. And it's a good picture of parents being involved in that. In Genesis 25, Isaac and Rebekah conceive. And Rebekah gives birth to two twin sons, and they name them Jacob and Esau. This took place, the Bible says, after uh, Jacob, after Isaac is praised for his wife Rebekah to have a child because she too was barren. In Genesis 25, verse 21, it says, Then Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. Because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Men, this is a beautiful moment to say, to be a godly husband, one of the most foundational things we should do is to be people who pray for our wives. If you don't pray for your wife, men and husbands today, it's probably because you are selfish. And that shows some areas in need of repentance in our hearts and lives. In Genesis 26, we see the Lord meeting with Isaac and renewing the covenant he made with Abraham that we see here in verses 23 through 25. And this is important, by the way. This is what defines them being patriarchs because they were the fathers of the nation of Israel because God specifically renewed the covenant with them. God would have many people who were his children, but these were the patriarchs because they alone had these moments. It says, then he, speaking of Isaac, went up from there to Beersheba. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. And he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servant dug a well. Now this is a beautiful thing again here where you remember when Abraham met with the Lord? The first thing he did was build an altar. Now here we see that Isaac has met with God and the first thing he did was build an altar. How do you think he knew to do that? It's a picture of discipleship. It was very likely that Abraham had told Isaac over the years of this promise that God had given him in the altar that he built. And so in response, he immediately did the same thing. It's a picture of how sons will follow the examples of their fathers. And then you go from Abraham and Isaac, then you go to Jacob. Like Abraham, the story of the life of Jacob is given in great detail. Essentially, it covers chapters 25 all the way through chapter 35 in Genesis. 
In Genesis 25, the Bible says that Esau was, was, born to, uh, was the first to be born to Rebekah. They were twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the first, and then Jacob came second. The Bible says that when they were, she was giving birth, that as Esau came out of the womb first, that Jacob came out clutching the heel of his brother. The Bible speaks about the two boys here. It says that Esau was a hairy man. That's just funny to me, by the way. How hairy do you have to be for the Bible to specifically mention that? Okay, that's just... It says that he was a hairy man who loved to hunt and cook wild game. But the Bible says that Jacob was a peaceful man who lived among the tents. I thought about this earlier this week. Essentially, Esau would have worked at Bass Pro and Jacob would have worked at the Mac store, if that makes sense. So... Both Jacob and Esau made bad moral decisions as young men. The Bible says in Genesis 25 that one day when Esau returned from hunting, that he was famished and asked his brother for some stew he had made. Jacob agreed to feed his brother, but only if his brother would sell him his birthright. And in his brother's great hunger, Esau agreed. Both brothers were wrong in this. Esau was wrong for selling his birthright for a bowl of stew. And Jacob was wrong for being cruel and deceptive to his brother. In Genesis 27, their father Isaac calls to Esau, the firstborn, and tells him that he is going blind and that soon he would die. He asks him to prepare some wild game for him to eat. And then after that, he would bless Esau which essentially would be him having praying for God's favor to be given to him as the firstborn, which would have been customary. However, however, Rebekah heard this and helped Jacob pretend to be Esau to their blind father and ultimately to help him steal his brother's blessing. So uh, Jacob comes in pretending to be Esau. Uh, Isaac, almost blind, blesses Esau and then blesses Isaac and then or blesses Jacob. And then when, when this happens in this moment, by the way, it's a lot of names going on here. I'm going to get them mixed up every now and then. And this happens in this moment. Obviously, Esau is enraged. His brother Jacob has stolen his inheritance, and now he's even stolen his blessing. And so his mother sends him away to the land of her family to live with her brother Laban. Now think about this for a moment. Jacob is not a nice guy here. He has done some very terrible things to his brother. He is a sinful, broken guy. And in Genesis 28, while he's on the run, he comes to a place, and the Bible says he goes to sleep. He puts a rock under his head, and he goes to sleep. And in Genesis 28, verse 12, it says this. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, and I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed." Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised. Remember that, by the way. In this place, God said, I'm going to bring you back to this place and I'm going to prove to you that I'm going to do everything I've done. Why is he saying that to Jacob? Because very likely Jacob is, is not sure about this because why would God ever bless a sinful man like him? 
The Bible says in verse 16, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. In Genesis 29, Jacob comes to the land of Laban, his uncle, and begins to live with him, where he falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel, and agrees to work for him for seven years for her hand in marriage. However, when it came time on the night to bring him uh, his new wife, Laban brings Leah, her sister, instead of Rachel. When he wakes up the next morning and the light comes in the tent, and he said, hey, hang on now, something's up. This is not the woman that I worked for. And so again, he agrees to work another seven years for Laban to get Rachel as his wife. When Laban gave his two daughters, he also gave with them their handservants, Zilpah and Bilal. Now, this is a good lesson to learn here uh, in this passage. As Christians, we do not believe in karma. You don't, we don't believe what goes around comes around. But what we do believe is scripturally in the law of the sower. That which a man sows, he will also reap. When you live a certain way in life, it puts you in situations to then receive the way that you've been living. And you see this with Jacob. Jacob deceived his own family and treated his brother unkindly. Now he is with Laban, his uncle, and being deceived and treated unkindly. And that is still true today. In Genesis 30, we see that it is through these women, ultimately Leah, Rachel, and their two hand servants, that Jacob would give birth to 12 sons who would end up being the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, God did not approve of the polygamous relationship here. God worked in spite of his sinfulness, and we'll get to that in a moment. In Genesis 30 and 35, we see several events in the life of Jacob. While he is in his father-in-law's house, God begins to humble Jacob. But he also begins to bless him financially, immensely. Jacob ends up leaving with his wives and possessions to return back home to Canaan. While on the way to Canaan, the Bible says in Genesis 32, he has a supernatural event where the Bible says that he wrestles with the angel of the Lord all night and ultimately tells the angel of the Lord, I will not let you go until you bless me. And then after this event, he is nearing Canaan and he has sent ambassadors ahead to his brother Esau because he is knowing that he needs to reconcile with his brother that he is deceived. And you see in that picture there in chapters 30 through 35 that eventually God reunites Esau and Jacob and these who were enemies at birth have now reconciled and Esau forgives his brother. And then finally in Genesis 35, the Lord leads Jacob back to Bethel. Back to that place where he first met with God in the middle of his sinfulness. And in this moment, God makes a covenant with him, renews his covenant with him. Why? Because God has now proven to him that he was who he said he was. In Genesis 35 verse 10, God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you shall no longer be called Jacob. But Israel shall be your name. This is where we get the name of the nation, the people, Israel. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Kings shall come from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. It's a covenant-renewing moment. Let me tell you again, names are important in the Old Testament here. His original name, Jacob, is meant to be, it means usurper. It means rebellious. It basically showed him to be somebody who he was. He was a rebellious, deceptive man. 
But over these years of running from God, God has humbled Jacob. And now he comes back to Bethel where he first met with God. And he is a humble man. And God says, now your name shall be Israel. The name Israel means God prevails. Essentially, it is God telling Jacob, Jacob, you fought against me, but I have prevailed over you. Now that you've humbled yourself, I can use you. And Jacob proudly wears that name. He said, oh God, truly I am Israel. I'm the one in whom you have prevailed over. Church family, God is still humbling people. And until you've been humbled by God, you can never truly be used by God. And then finally, to understand this era of the patriarchs and God's story, we must then look to Joseph. Remember these 12 sons that came from Jacob, or whose name would be changed to Israel, uh, would ultimately, the youngest would be one called Joseph. The Bible says Joseph was a man of great integrity. He was the last 12 of the, the sons of Jacob and Israel. The Bible says that his father favored his youngest son and gave him a multicolored tunic. One day, Joseph began to have dreams that depicted him being lifted up over his brothers and his brothers being jealous against him. They didn't like this, and so they went out to kill him. They threw him into a pit. They were going to kill him. And then eventually they said, well, if we kill him, we don't get anything from him. So they sold him into slavery. It's a terrible picture of brothers turning on their youngest brother. But from there, the Bible says that God was with Joseph. He ends up getting sold to be the slave in a man named Potiphar's house who was a servant to Pharaoh in Egypt. While he's there, God raises him up to be second, to be in command over all of Potiphar's house, second only to Potiphar. But while he's there, Potiphar's wife uh, begins to make sexual advances towards him. But again, Joseph is a man of integrity, and he runs away from her in every situation. By the way, men, if that ever happens in your life, you can't play around. You can't stay in the room. You get out of Dodge, and Joseph did that. Well, eventually, Potiphar's wife becomes enraged over this, and so she accuses him of having attempted to rape her. And so he is arrested and thrown into prison. But yet again, God is with him. While he's in prison, God raises him up to be number two and all over the prison underneath the chief jailer there who is over the prison. While he's there, he meets two officials in the house of Pharaoh and he shows them that God has given him the ability to interpret dreams. Years later, Pharaoh has a dream that he knows is from God, but nobody in his court can give him the interpretation of the dream. But one of the men there remembered Joseph in prison. They called Joseph in. Joseph is able to interpret the dream that a great famine is coming upon Egypt. And, And Pharaoh raises Joseph up again. Now he is second over all of Egypt only to Pharaoh. Now again, this is how God is working in this. This famine begins to take place, but Joseph has prepared for it. And the famine reaches all the way to Canaan, to his brothers, to Israel, his father. And the whole beginning parts of the nation of Israel is in threat of dying because of hunger. And so Israel, Jacob, sends his brothers to Egypt to buy food. And while there, Joseph reveals to them who he is and rightfully they are afraid because Joseph could have executed judgment on them for having sold him into slavery but a beautiful picture of forgiveness is given by Joseph in Genesis 50 verse 20 it says he looks at his brothers and he says as for you you meant evil against me but God 
meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Now, Joseph would not be a patriarch. God never specifically gave him the covenant, but he is one of the sons of the covenant. And in fact, he has two sons. And before his father Israel dies, he lays his hands on the two sons and they become two of the 12 tribes of Israel, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now that's where you end in Genesis. So this morning, I know we covered a lot there and that was like drinking water from a fire hydrant, but that is the overall picture of what's going on in this era. Second question this morning. Very quickly, what is a key scripture or theme that you need to know from this era, this moment in God's history, God's story? Ultimately, the theme in this is that God is creating a covenant people. As we read this morning in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, it all starts with God says, from Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I am going to make a nation of people that I will bless, and through you, All the nations of the world will be blessed. It was always about God creating Israel. God creating a special covenant group of people. But it never ended there. And that's important to know. While, while yes, absolutely, God loves the Jews. God loves Israel. And I believe today that we still need to pray for the peace in Israel. To pray for uh, the Jewish people. But God never ended it there. It was always about, ultimately, through you I will bless you, and that through you all the peoples of the world will be blessed. Question number three. What are some of the key points that God wants us to know today about this era in this story? Basically, what are some of the lessons that we can learn here? What are some of the things that God wants to speak to us today? Remember, God's word is not just what he has spoken, but it is what he is still speaking. I want to give you two main lessons to learn from this era that you can take home with you today. First, this era reminds us that God uses broken people to serve his purposes. If you read through the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the the brothers of Joseph, what you find out real quickly is that God's special people were not unique in their holiness. They were not unique in their righteousness. Twice the Bible says that Abraham pretends that his wife, Sarah, is his sister to save his own skin. And in both situations, she almost becomes violated because of it. Church family, that is not a picture of a godly husband. It's a picture of a coward. Out of her impatience, Sarah tries to go around God's plan and to give Hagar as uh, to Abraham uh, to, to, have, to be a surrogate, to have children through, and Abraham agrees to it. Again, from there you go to Isaac. Isaac, we see, follows the same example of his dad. By the way, again, discipleship matters. Men in this room, we will disciple our children one way or another. It'll either be good or bad. What happens when Isaac gets in a bad situation among other rulers is that he pretends Rebecca is his sister. Where do you think he got that idea? Again, men, our children will copy us one way or another, good or bad, And as we talked about earlier, when you talk about sinfulness, Jacob is the prototype not good guy in the world. Jacob's sin was great. He cheated his brother. He lied to his father. He was unkind to his wife Leah. And he too, on multiple occasions, took multiple wives instead of trusting in God's provision. Church family, we shouldn't ever see the fact that God used these people to mean that God agreed with their sinful actions. 
I hear people ask me sometimes, well, you see, does this mean that God agreed with polygamy? No. God worked in spite of their sinfulness. God was fulfilling His purpose. But what we do see, just like we see in Jacob, what we see with Abraham, is that these men, though they were not perfect, and they were very sinful, is that they were also very humble. And they suffered the consequences of their sin regularly, and that they would humble themselves before God and repent, and then God would restore them and use them. Some of you in this room today, you need to hear that. You always feel like you can only go so close in your relationship with God. You feel like that in some way there's a ceiling on how God can use you and what God can do in and through your life. You know, when the Bible says to the opposite, that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Because of our sins in life, sometimes the way that God uses you may change, but the willingness for God to use you and work in your life will Never change. Can I get an amen to that this morning? The Bible says His mercies are new each morning. But secondly, this era reminds us that God is able to bring about beautiful things in broken situations. Man, in this era, you see a lot of brokenness, a lot of hurt done in the lives of people. But you can also see God working in it. The first person I think about is Hagar. Think about Hagar. She's just the servant to Sarah. And she gets given to Abraham to be a surrogate. And the way that it reads, it's almost as if she has no choice in the matter. That, that seems broken in and of itself. But then once Sarah has a child, now they don't want anything to do with Ishmael. And so Abraham sends away Hagar and Ishmael out into the wilderness, is what the Bible says. And the Bible says that while they are in the wilderness, they run out of water and they are about to die of thirst. And that Hagar takes Ishmael puts him under some trees in the shade, and she goes a great distance away from him and sits down and says, Lord, I please do not let me see the child die. But in that moment of brokenness, this woman who had been abused, mistreated, and seems to be forgotten, left for dead, the Bible says that the angel of the Lord shows up to her and says, For surely he will not die, but through your son Ishmael I will create a mighty nation. And then he shows her a well of water, he gives her what he needs, and ultimately God fulfills that promise. God broke beauty out of brokenness. It's the same thing we see with Joseph. As Joseph went through being abandoned by his children, being falsely accused, being put in prison, that ultimately God took this man who had went through so much wrong, had so much wrong done to him, but he kept his integrity before God. God raised him up, and because of Joseph, is that the entire, his entire descendants, all the nation of Israel, would be provided for and cared for. What does this speak to us today? The application for us today is this. Just because you have endured or are enduring brokenness and hardship doesn't mean that God is through with you. Sometimes God's about to do something that you can't see. All over Scripture, you see God loves a good comeback story. Just this past week, we were blessed with the opportunity. My brother and I and my oldest nephew, Cooper, and my son, Jackson, we got to go on Friday night to a Braves game. 
We drove over to, drove over to Atlanta, and it was the bottom of the eighth. The Braves were down two uh, to one. And you talk about two sad little boys right there at the game going to watch the Braves lose. We had one runner on with two outs, but Acuna comes up to the plate. And when they throw him a, a fastball inside and low, which is just like he likes it, he takes it yard about 400 feet over the right field fence. And the Braves go up three to two, and the entire stadium goes nuts. And they start doing the chop oh, and you talk about awesome. It was pretty great. Ended up getting on a rally and scored six runs in that inning. The Braves ended up winning seven to two. It is, listen, there's something that's always exciting about a come from behind. The Bible makes it clear that God is always about bringing beauty from brokenness. In Exodus, we'll look at next week, God's people are abandoned in Egypt for several hundred years, and they called it to God in slavery. The Bible says that God heard their cry, and that ultimately, in the middle of their brokenness, God showed that He was the one true God to defy the gods of Egypt. In the book of Daniel, the Bible says when the three young Hebrew boys who were sentenced to death because they would not worship the foreign gods are thrown into the fire, but then they begin to look into the fire, and the Bible says there's not three men in the fire, there's four men in the fire, and then suddenly the three boys step out of the fire, and they're not only not dead or burned, they don't even smell like smoke, and the pagan king sees that God is at work, and it ultimately ends up, God takes a broken situation, and they, they ends up making it beautiful by a proclamation going off throughout the pagan land that the God of Israel is the one true God. And then in the Gospels, and you probably know where I'm going in this, God loves a good comeback story. When the Son of God, who was bearing the sin of the world on the cross, and he hung his head and died, the Bible says that he, he quoted, it is finished, and he died. And they took him down off the cross, and they laid him in a tomb, and all of his followers all around them doubted what would happen. It seemed like a broken morning, but then something happened on Sunday morning where the tomb rolled away, the stone rolled away and Jesus walked out of the tomb. God loves the comeback story. If there's anything that we need to see from this era in history today, it doesn't matter where you are in your brokenness. You may be struggling with your kids. You may be struggling with your marriage. You may be struggling with your help, but don't count out God stepping in and doing a work. Also, even in the situations in life, church family, when God's people never get to see the beauty of brokenness in this life, and that happens sometimes. Sometimes we're praying for God to move and work, and it just doesn't seem like God answers in the timing the way that we want to. Inside Jesus, inside the gospel, we get the promise that this life does not have the final say. And when the dead in Christ rise first, when Jesus calls up those out of the grave who were his children and he steps down as king over all the earth, all sin and all brokenness will be redeemed. And I want you to know this morning, church, that in Jesus, one day, every wrong will be made right. And then our fifth, our fourth and final question we must answer this morning is that what are the redemptive threads in this story, in this era? Where do we see? Remember, God is always bringing about a promise of a Savior. And we see it all over the Scriptures. Last thing very quickly this morning, the first picture of redemption we see is the promise. The promise. Again, the promise over and over again, the covenant to God's people was that through you all the peoples of the world will be blessed. If you go to the book of Matthew and you see the genealogy of Jesus. I know genealogies can be hard sometimes. You see the genealogy of Jesus. You go backwards from Jesus 
all the way to King David. A man after God's own heart. But you go backwards from King David, and it takes you to Abraham. 2,000 years, roughly 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus. And what you see there is that picture when God says, through you, I'm going to bless you. But through you, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth. God wasn't talking about material blessings. He was going to talk about fixing that brokenness. The greatest blessing that they need was just to be brought near to God. So in Jesus now, we can be blessed with forgiveness. We can be blessed with nearness. We can be blessed with his, his direction in our life, his strength in our life, his hope in our life. In Jesus, we are given the greatest blessing the world has ever known. And that promise started here at Abraham. We also see the provision of, in this text, the provision of a sacrifice. You know, the picture of Abraham offering Isaac is that God ultimately provides a ram in the bushes to come in and stand in the place of Isaac to be the sacrifice. Is that 2,000 years ago from this point, in time, we look backwards in God's story and we see that as Jesus Christ hung on the cross for the sin of the world, is what's happening is, is we deserve death, but God has provided a sacrifice. Jesus has stepped into our place. And the only difference between Abraham and the Father, God the Father, is that when Abraham went to kill his son, God stopped him. But when God the Father went to slay his son, he didn't stop himself. And this is where we get the picture that we see in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is the gospel. This is the picture, the provision. God gave us blessings in Jesus. And the last picture we see of redemption in this text is the portrayal of forgiveness. You know, the, the story of Joseph is by far one of the greatest stories of forgiveness. Somebody ask Brother Ron and Brother Ken to come. It's one of the greatest stories of forgiveness. That a brother who had been sold into slavery, sinned against by their own family, is thrown into a pit, this says at first, then sold into slavery and discarded. God took that same brother and raised him up on a great throne. And when his brothers came before him, rightfully they were afraid because he could have poured out judgment on them. But instead, he looked at them and gave him grace. In the same way, Jesus, who was like our brother in the flesh, who came in the likeness of man, is it humanity? We rejected him too. And we killed him and threw him into a pit. But God raised him up to a throne. And rightfully so, God could have poured out judgment upon us, but instead, he gave grace. I was thinking about it after the first service today. If there's anything this era should say to us this morning, church, it should say for a long, long, long time, God has been chasing after us. God has been pursuing his people. Y'all know my son, Isaiah, we adopted him several years ago now. We adopted him. He was one. He's four years old. And listen, he's got the sweetest face in the world he can be. Sometimes I want to punt him across the room, but he's ours, you know. One day. One day, I'll be able to look at him in spite of all the brokenness around his story. One day, I'll be able to look at him and tell him about the dream he and, he and his mama had. One night out of nowhere of us adopting some children. And how that led us to this event, led us to this training, and led us to this place, and led us to all these different places to bring him to our home. Is it a story that God was working way beforehand? 
to bring him to us. Some of you this morning need to hear that today. You are loved by God. And he's been working for a long time since Abraham that you may know him. And he's working in this room today. If you don't know Jesus today and he's drawing you, you can receive him as your Savior and Lord this morning. You say, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for loving me. I give my life to you. Save me. Oh, God, he can save you. If you do know him, let me tell you what this story should do for all of us here today. Man, it should cause us to rejoice as God's people. God, you've been after me for a long time. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you found me. Every one of us should leave here this morning so loved. Maybe you need to receive that, let that wash over you again today. Our pastors are going to be up front. We do an invitation every week, and this is what this invitation is for. If you need to give your life to Jesus... You need somebody to help you in that. Come forward and we'd love to pray for you in that. If you want to join this church, then hey, come forward. If you just need somebody to pray for you in your walk with God, you come forward. We'll pray for you in these next few moments. But right now, do business with God. The Word of God has gone out. Respond to Him this morning. Can I ask you to stand? Lord Jesus, I ask you, would you help us to respond this morning to you? For those who don't know you, may they call out to you right now in faith and just say, save me, Jesus. For those who need to know you afresh and anew, say, Jesus, draw me back to you. Lord, may you be honored in Christ's name. Amen.